There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We're sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time. Hello and welcome to the World Cricket Show, the world's favourite cricket show. I'm your host and my name is Adam Bayfield and with me in the studio this week is absolutely nobody. If you listen to last week's show you'll know that my usual co-host Tony Kerr is away in England in the middle of a stand-up comedy tour. He's traipsing around provincial towns in the south of England, gigging at pubs and clubs and staying in uh, premier inns and travel lodges. You know, the real sort of glamorous life of the entertainer he's living this week. Uh, from what I hear, it's going very well. Uh, he says the response has been good, certainly in his life up to this point. Tony has never had a problem with people laughing at him. But anyway, he's away, uh, so it's just going to be me tonight. That's all right, though, isn't it? Yeah, just me, just your old mate, Adam. I was going to get Tony on the phone, but uh, I spoke to him earlier, and apparently he just can't find even 15 minutes in his hectic schedule to fulfil his broadcasting obligations. He said he had lots of important stuff to do, but it kind of sounded like he was on his way out, I'll be honest, out on the town. Uh, so yeah, he told me he couldn't do it, and uh, and he said, so what are you, uh, I'll do my Tony impression now, so what are you, uh, are you just going to do a monologue? Uh, and I said, yes. And there was a long pause, and he said, that'll be good. But realistically, it's what the listening public have been crying out for for years. We get so many emails, get rid of Tony, get rid of Tony, just have Adam doing a monologue. And, well, here we go for one week only, people getting what they want. I suppose I could do it not just as a monologue, I could do it as if Tony was actually here. Uh, I could sit here and ask him the questions that I would usually ask and wait for the answers. Uh, might be waiting a long time. It'd be like some sort of uh, like some sort of short story where there's a person that's talking to someone, someone that they, they used to talk to, and that other person is long gone, uh, but they just can't accept it. Uh, what I could do is I could get a football and paint a face on it, uh, and I could talk to that. Instead of Tony, I could maybe call him Wilson. That's a reference to the Tom Hanks movie Castaway, uh, which came out 12 years ago. Uh, this show is nothing if not topical. But anyway, Tony's back next week, uh, so this will just be for one episode, unless it tests well with the focus groups, in which case I will terminate Tony's contract in an instant. I won't hesitate to do that, and he can go off and pursue his little stand-up dreams full-time. That'll be good. But I could talk all night about Tony's comedy career and the reasons why it's not going to succeed. But there's so much cricket happened this week that it's probably time that I turn my attentions to that. I don't know if any of you saw that India and England played a test match this week in Ahmedabad. Well, they did, and I'll be getting right in amongst all the stories to have emerged from that in just a moment. I'll also take a flying trip around the world to discuss the upcoming test in Adelaide and a very exciting test match that's just taken place in Gaul. And I expect I might even fire off a couple of side notes as well. I'm just going to take a sip of my tea here to keep me going. 
I need that. I've been fe- I've been feeling pretty tired all week. It's it's the effects of the cricket. So getting up early to to watch England and India. I said last week that Australia need to get on a better time zone. Uh, it's something that India probably need to think about as well. I set my alarm for three forty five a.m. to watch the start of the final day, uh, and that just ruined me for the rest of the day and the next day too. It's a very strange experience watching cricket that early in the morning. You know, you're on the sofa, it's four in the morning, it's dark, it's cold, England are losing wickets, I've run out of cereal, and Nick Knight and Ian both are on commentary, and it becomes very difficult to remember why I decided to set my alarm. As I say, it's all made worse, uh, those early starts, when the team that you support is not doing that well. Uh, five consecutive days this week started with incredibly depressing news for me. Every time uh, I'd wake up, the first thing I'd do would be to check the score, and then I'd just be terribly depressed and then I'd go back to sleep for a little bit and then I'd get up and watch it and there's this kind of weird half waking half sleeping world where dreams and reality start to intertwine Uh, and I eventually wake up uh, thinking that England have been bowled out for nine that was a dream that I had and then I panic because I think they've been bowled out for nine and then I realise that that was a dream Uh, and then I check the score and see that it is almost as bad you know India are 250 for one or England are 150 for eight So yeah, just a very, very depressing week for me. So that's a good note to start the show on. England. This is the part of the show where we talk about all the cricket played by England. Now, England's test series in India has got off to a deeply disappointing start, if you're an England fan, with what in the end was a crushing nine-wicket defeat in Ahmedabad. India won a crucial toss and racked up 521 for eight declared in 160 overs of their first innings. Verinda Sevag smashed 117 runs from 117 balls to get the home side off to a flyer and their strong position was solidified by Chiteshwar Pujara who was unbeaten on 206 when Omes Dhoni finally called the batsman in. Graham Swan took five wickets, five for 144 in 51 overs of toil but not much else to show for England's bowlers' efforts. The three seam bowlers, Anderson, Broad and Bresnan, bowled 70 overs between them for just one wicket. In response, England's batting failed dismally. They were all out for 191, Pragyan Oja taking 5 for 45. They were made to follow on and they put up much more resistance in the second innings, this time batting for 154 overs. Alistair Cook with an astonishing innings of 176. He was supported by Matt Pryor, who made 91, but nobody else could really get in. And eventually England were all out for 406, which set India a target of 80, and they got there for the loss of just one wicket to wrap up the win. Now, there are kind of two ways of looking at this game, and I've seen both articulated in the media. The first is that England fought back superbly after an appalling first innings here, led by Alistair Kirk and by Matt Pryor. They came back into the game, and and that, that fight back was so strong and so impressive that... Even though it was ultimately in vain, it is actually England that are the ones in possession of that intangible but invaluable thing that we in the the cricketing world call momentum. The second way of looking at it is that England got thrashed. I guess I would stand somewhere in the middle, but maybe leaning towards the second of those viewpoints. There is no way that you can deny that India were well on top of the tourists for virtually all of this game. And really, there was just some sloppy cricket from England. There was undisciplined bowling, mindless batting at times, catches going down. And sloppiness is something that's really characterised their cricket all year, when it used to be the very opposite of the type of word that you you would use to describe 
the England cricket team really not that long ago, sort of 12 months ago. Um, they were incredibly disciplined, incredibly professional. But in 2012, that, that's kind of gone the other way. They have been very sloppy. And that's been borne out by the fact that they've lost seven out of the 12 tests that they've played this year at this point. Inevitably, the focus has to be on the batting. You know, a first innings total of 191 is nowhere near good enough. The notion that England can't play spin is becoming more or less impossible to contradict. You know, if this was an isolated incident, maybe you could write it off, you know, in in the words of Daniel Powter as a bit of a bad day. Uh, But it's not an isolated incident. You know, they've played six first innings in Asia this year, and they've been bowled out for less than 200 on four of those six occasions. And that's not something that you'd expect from the number one or number two side in the world. I think they still bear the scars of the UAE. They were tormented by Saeed Ajman and Abdul Rahman against Pakistan. They didn't know how to play them. They didn't know whether they were supposed to be defending every ball or attacking every ball. And I think we saw the effects of that in this game. We saw it in some of the shot selection, particularly from Kevin Peterson and from Ian Bell, uh, who was out for a first ball duck trying to smash Oja down the ground. What's so frustrating from an English perspective is that these guys really aren't bad players. They're not bad batsmen, even against spin. You know, I've watched Ian Bell and Kevin Peterson score confident hundreds against the likes of Shane Warne and Matthias Miralitherin, who are much better bowlers than Oja and Ashwin, and are even better bowlers than Saeed Ajmal. You know, he's a fantastic spin bowler, but Warne and Murali are, you know, arguably the two best spinners ever. And these England batsmen have scored runs against those guys. So it's not that they can't do it. There's obviously just some sort of psychological block at the moment for whatever reason. You do wonder whether they'd be going through this same thing had they not collapsed to Ajmal on, on the first day of the first test in the UAE. Or if they had chased down that small target of 140 or whatever it was in Abu Dhabi. And they were dismissed for 72 in that game. You know, I think it's I think that really affected them and it's still affecting them. You know, maybe when they they when they went back to England, they were able to put it out of their heads. But then as soon as they come back to the subcontinent, it's all they can think about. But this pitch was nothing like as difficult to bat on as the pitches that they had in the UAE. These spin bowlers are not as good as the ones in the UAE. So it is something that's in their heads and nowhere else. And and maybe the way that Cook and Pryor batted in the second innings of this game. You know, maybe that can at least offer some grounds for hope because you know they that partnership was fantastic and they they didn't look like getting out at any point until they did. Hopefully, from an English perspective, that stoic confidence that they had might infect the others. Maybe as they're watching in the dressing room, they'll realise that actually it is possible to bat on these services. And it was an absolutely phenomenal innings from Alistair Cook. He's now captain England in three Test matches after leading them in Bangladesh two and a half years ago, and he's got three hundreds. And this one is arguably one of the best ever centuries by an England batsman, certainly the best century by an England batsman since the last one. Uh, but it was, it was a phenomenal display of patience and concentration. And, and to a large extent, it was just a real demonstration of what makes Test cricket such an extraordinary sport. Because as I say, the concentration and the determination that was required to play that kind of innings is not something that you get in any other format of cricket. And it's not something that you get in most other sports. Unfortunately, it was in vain, and so it won't be remembered in the same way that, say, Michael Atherton's knock in Johannesburg was back in the 90s. But just in isolation, it was an incredible innings. It's his 21st Test 100, 
And when you consider that he's still only 27, the number that he does end up with could be astonishing. You know, he'd have to go some to put serious pressure on Sachin Tendulkar's record of, of 51. Uh, but it's not absolutely out of the question that he could go past that, which is a remarkable thing in itself, because you'd think that Tendulkar's record would stay for forever, more or less, or for generations, certainly. But actually, if Cook doesn't have long periods out of the side with injury, if he stays fit, I'd be surprised if he doesn't make it past 40. You know, you'd imagine that he's going to play for another 10 years or more. He's got 2100s in the first six and a half years of his career. So if he doesn't go past 40, it will be surprising. And 50 is not necessarily out of range. Matt Pryor also batted really well. He's so often England's unsung hero. And once again, he played the supporting role in that partnership. But it was a great hand that he played. But those two can't do it all on their own. I mean, they were the the two top scorers in England's first innings as well. They need some support from the middle order. They need some support from the really experienced guys there. Kevin Peterson obviously had a really bad game. I don't want to overreact with Peterson. A lot of people saying, oh, why do we even want him back? But let's not forget that he did score an unbelievable 100 in the test before this one, and he scored an unbelievable 100 in his previous test in the subcontinent as well. He didn't look great in this game, but I think he'll come good in the series. Jonathan Trott is due a big series. There has been a a silent decline in his form over the last year or so. I think he's only averaging about 30 in 2012. Now, that decline isn't even close to career-threatening yet. His performances before this year um, earn him a lot of breathing space, but now would be a good time for him to start grinding out those gloriously dull hundreds once again. So while the batting was overwhelmingly responsible for this defeat, it's the bowling unit that is coming under most scrutiny in terms of selection. That does often seem to be the way the batsmen fail and there are changes to the bowling attack. There's going to be one enforced change to the batting lineup because Ian Bell is flying home uh, for the birth of his child. Johnny Bairstow Uh, is his most likely replacement. Owen Morgan, possibly, I saw on Sky, uh, Ian Botham and David Lloyd were were calling for Morgan to be drafted in. I think Lloyd was calling for him to be drafted in in place of Trot because he's an excellent player of spin. They were saying, you know, we need Morgan in the side. I'm pretty sure that they were amongst those that were tearing into Owen Morgan for how badly he played spin against Pakistan. A a clear case, I think, of, of someone getting much better when they're not in the team. I think Owen Morgan's a a really good player. I think he does have a test future, but I wouldn't necessarily expect him to come in and succeed. And I think Johnny Verstey did enough in the summer against South Africa to earn a chance here. So yeah, there is one enforced change to the batting lineup, but I think there will be some changes to the bowling attack because Graham Swan accepted, and Swan was fantastic, but him apart, the bowlers did not have a great game. England went in with a three-man seam attack, and I think they realised after about an hour that they'd got that wrong. They should have picked Monty Panazar. Andy Flower has admitted as much. They made that same mistake in the first test in the Emirates as well. They didn't pick Panazar, then they picked him for the the second and third tests, and he did really, really well. So they shouldn't have picked three seamers, but it might not have been so disastrous had those seamers actually performed in the UAE. Broad and Anderson were outstanding. You know, that's arguably the best they've ever bowled. But here they were just spectacularly innocuous. They've both lost a yard of pace, I think, in the last few months. And Tim Bresnan has lost more than a yard. I love Tim Bresnan. I'd go so far as to say he's one of my favourite cricketers. You know, he works hard with the ball. He digs in with the bat. He does whatever the team asks him to do. And 12 months ago, he was a genuinely world-class player. But then he had surgery. And since then, he's not been anything like the same bowler. Maybe he can rediscover his zip. But right now, he's not test class. And so for now, at least, I think 
his time is up. Monty Panazar must surely come in for him in Mumbai. Historically, I've not always been his biggest fan, and I really don't think people should be expecting him to be the silver bullet that's going to come in and solve all of England's problems. But he will definitely be more of an attacking threat than Bresnan in these conditions, and he'll provide more control as well. And England do just need two spinners. Samit Patel, who got through more than 30 overs in India's first innings, is just not good enough. If Swan and Panazar play, I think that is at least as good a spin-bowling duo as Ashwin and Oja. The difference is the capability of their batsmen that they're up against to play spin. How Graham Swan must wish that he could get the opportunity to bowl at the English batsman. He would have a hell of a time, I think. Turning to India, this was a very impressive performance from them, underlining why they've been historically so dominant in their home conditions. You know, we talked about this last week. It's, they've only lost, I think, three out of the last 40 series at home. It's unbelievably difficult to come to India and get a result. They know exactly what they have to do to win. And this was just a, a cookie-cutter performance almost. Win the toss, bat first, bat long, and then just let the, the spinners do the work and, and skittle the opposition twice. But the fact that it was in some ways very predictable shouldn't diminish uh, the performances of some of the individuals. It was a, a remarkable innings from Pajara. He's been lined up for a while as the heir to the, the Rahul Dravid mantle, as the wool. Uh, and he showed why. Fantastic innings. He was unbeaten at the end uh, of India's second innings as well. So, so England weren't able to dismiss him in this match. And generally speaking, their bowling was very good too. They just wore England down with, with disciplined spin and reverse swing. Nothing spectacular, um, but it didn't always have to be. So there are lots of reasons to be pleased if you're Emma Stoney or Duncan Fletcher. Whereas England only had meaningful contributions from three players, I think most of India's players came to the party here. They weren't all dancing on the tables and belting out karaoke numbers, but almost all of them were there at the party, enjoying the nibbles and, and the conversation. I was particularly impressed with Umesh Yadav. Uh, who Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST was quicker and better than any of the English seam bowlers. There are one or two concerns. Ravi Ashwin got through a heck of a lot of overs without taking a wicket in the second innings. I think he bowled 43 overs, just the one wicket, and that was Graham Swan playing a, a somewhat questionable reverse sweep. There will also be concerns about Sachin Tendulkar, who, who fell cheaply uh, in a fashion not too dissimilar to Ian Bell, perhaps suggesting an equally scrambled mind. And the biggest concern, I think, will be that they were in the field for 228 consecutive overs across four separate days. Now, India don't have a reputation for being the fittest team in the world, and certainly England are fitter. And that might be 
the brightest ray of hope for England heading into Mumbai. If they win the toss, if they bat first, they've got the opportunity to grind India into the dirt here. If they can keep them out there for another 120 plus overs, that might begin to take its toll as the match progresses. So it's not impossible that England could turn this series around. There was enough encouragement in the second innings of this game to suggest that we could yet have a test series on our hands. Surely they can't bat as badly as they did in that first innings. And hopefully the gutsier performance second time around will have restored some confidence to that top six. They should just remember, you know, this is not the UAE. The bowlers aren't as good as Pakistan's. The pitches aren't as bad. Really, there isn't any reason why they can't post 450 to 500 in the first innings. And if they can do that, they've got a chance. So this series is not over. There are three games to go. I do think England will get better. In Sri Lanka, they fought back and won the second test there after a disappointing defeat first time out. So there are some reasons to be cheerful if you're an England fan, but there are many, many more reasons to be cheerful if you're an Indian fan. And you'd have to say that if you were going to place a bet, um, you probably wouldn't bet against India going 2-0 up. It's going to be very difficult for England to win the series from this position. They certainly can't afford to lose in Mumbai. Obviously, that's true mathematically, um, but also in terms of psychology, it's highly unlikely that they're going to win both of the last two games if they go 2-0 down. So they've just got to emerge from Mumbai unscathed. Otherwise, this series really is over. But I'm raring to go for the second test. It starts on Friday. I'm going to the supermarket tomorrow and I'm going to stock up on cereal. The last thing you want to do when it's four in the morning and you're watching the cricket is to run out of Rice Krispies. Around the world now, on which we discuss things that have been happening around the world, let's cross first to Sri Lanka, uh, where the home side have just registered what was in the end a comprehensive victory over the touring New Zealanders in Gaul. After winning the toss, New Zealand made 221 in the first innings. They struggled to put partnerships together, half centuries from Brendan McCullum and Daniel Flynn, but that was it really. Five wickets for Rangana Herath. In response, Sri Lanka got off to an appalling start when they were 20 for four. They lost both openers for Ducks. And although Sri Lanka did recover somewhat with 91, for Mahila Jaiwoodner and 79 for Angelo Matthews. The Kiwis would still have been feeling pretty pleased uh, to keep their opponents to just 247, a lead of 26. They'd have felt they were very much in the game at that point, but six more wickets for Hirath, six for 43 he took, meant that New Zealand were bowled out for just 118 in their second inning, setting Sri Lanka a target of 93, and they got there without losing a wicket, this time the openers managing to get the job done. So a 10-wicket victory for Sri Lanka then. New Zealand, like England, do seem to be struggling in subcontinent conditions. It is difficult. It's very difficult for non-subcontinent teams to come into these conditions and win. It's always been difficult historically. It's still difficult. But that doesn't give too much consolation for those teams when they do suffer big defeats like this. They did fight hard for a while. They did pretty well with the ball, I thought, to bowl Sri Lanka out for 247 is actually a tremendous effort. And so they stayed in the game, but eventually they succumbed. And it was it was the spinners, Herath in particular, that undid them in the end. New Zealand's batting has been letting them down for a while. Talk about England's struggles with spin. The Kiwis recently played a series in India where they lost 31 wickets to spin in two test matches. 13 more fell to spin in this game. And they've now lost five test matches in a row. There's a pretty stark contrast with this time last year when they won that memorable game in Hobart to, to draw the series in Australia. Things not going great for the New Zealand test side at the moment. They can take heart from how the bowlers performed here, but like England and India, it's tough to see where they're going to get victories from 
if the batsmen don't improve very rapidly. Sri Lanka, on the other hand, continuing their gradual improvement in Test cricket. They had a tough couple of years. They went almost two years without a win. But then they won a Test match in South Africa last year. Terrific victory there, although they eventually lost the series. But then they drew with England at home, beat Pakistan at home, and now they lead New Zealand here. And they seem to be playing with much more confidence than they were this time last year. Rangana Herath underlining his status as one of the best spin bowlers in the world at the moment with 11 more wickets here. He might not be one of the most feared bowlers in the game, but he's taken 46 wickets in seven test matches in 2012 and averaged only just above 20. And he's picked up five five-wicket hauls along the way, which is remarkable stuff. Uh, so with one test to go, it's an enormous ask for New Zealand to get something out of this series. They're yet to win a game on this tour in any format. And Sri Lanka are going to be feeling pretty confident of, of completing a clean sweep at Colombo. That final test starts on Sunday. Now if we go down across the Indian Ocean to Australia, the second test between the home side and South Africa begins in Adelaide on Thursday. The first game, you'll remember, ended in a draw after an incredible batting display from the home side, led by Michael Clarke's unbeaten double century. And as a result of that, Australia are much the more settled side going into this second test. They're picking the same 11, no place for Mitchell Stark still. Ben Hilfenhaus keeps his place. There was some talk of Shane Watson returning to the team, but shockingly, he's been ruled out with an injury. He did say that he felt he might be able to play uh, as just a batsman, um, but the Australian selectors weren't convinced about that. They weren't sure, firstly, whether he'd be fit enough to do that, but also whether they want to pick him if he can't bowl, if he can't be an all-rounder. Ricky Ponting was asked whether or not he thought Watson could play as a specialist batsman, and his view can basically be summed up as, no way, which is good, because that's one of my favourite things to say in an Australian accent. No way! Sounds a bit like, home and away, neighbours, Kylie Minogue. Ricky Ponting said all of these things about Shane Watson, uh, which led to some confusion at the press conference. But yeah, basically, he was unusually forthcoming, I thought, in, in saying that he didn't think Watson should play as a specialist batsman. I say that because, you know, Watson had declared that he wanted to do that. So for Ponting to sort of say, no, I really don't think he can, uh, was slightly surprising. Uh, and it does suggest the fact that the selectors haven't picked him here does maybe call into question his long-term future in this Australian side because it suggests that they don't consider him to be one of the six best batsmen in Australia. I'm not sure whether I necessarily agree with that. I think he is a very good test batsman. He's had trouble in converting 50s into 100s, but I'd have more confidence in him than uh, Rob Quiney coming into the test team or than David Warner in, in scoring those big test match 100s. Um, but it's just symptomatic of the, the changing status of Shane Watson in this Australian test setup. Um, he's obviously the main man in limited overs cricket, but a year or so ago, he was equally undroppable in test matches. He was one of only about two batsmen that were actually scoring runs in test cricket. But at this point, they've got a few different options. As I say, I'm not as convinced about those other options, but the selectors do feel that they exist. And in the long run, Watson and David Warner might be competing for one spot in this lineup. And given that Warner is younger and appears to be much less injury prone, although mind you, next to sick note, Watson, Andrew Flintoff looks fit as a fiddle, doesn't he? Um, but given that, you'd think that Warner might be the one that they go for in the long term. And um, so if Watson isn't able to get fit enough to bowl, he's going to struggle to get his place back in that 11. As for South Africa, you'd expect their bowlers to be better than they were in Brisbane. Imran Tahir looks likely to play. He was left out 
of the first test, which, as we discussed last week, was a slightly bizarre decision. Uh, and he adds a, a different dimension to their attack. But also, you just expect Stain, Morkel, Philander to improve on what was a fairly limp showing in Brisbane. Australia were very impressive there, but they're still going to find it hard to take 20 South African wickets, I think, just getting Hashim Amler out before you even talk about Jacques Callis or Graham Smith. Just removing Amler is so difficult. So I would still make the South Africans favourites for this game and for the series, but it should be a cracking game of cricket. I just need to work on staying awake past midnight and uh, I should be able to see some of it. Maybe when I go to the supermarket for my cereal tomorrow, I'll, uh, I'll pick up some Pro Plus or something as well. The side notes now, in which we discuss some of the more offbeat stories of the cricketing week. Essentially what we do on this item uh, is we read articles that we found on the internet uh, that at least tangentially relate to cricket. I've got a couple here this week that I'm going to hit you hard with right now. Uh, this one comes from BBC Sport. Usain Bolt may play football or cricket after 2016 Olympics. Sprint star Usain Bolt will not appear in this year's Big Bash 2020 league, but may consider switching to cricket or football after the 2016 Olympics. The Jamaican, 26, held talks with Shane Warne's Melbourne Stars in October, but Bolt's agent Ricky Sims told BBC Sport, quote, Usain is currently an athlete focused on his preparations for the 2013 World Championships in Moscow. He may try his hand at cricket or football when he retires from running, but that would be after 2016. Bolt, who grew up in cricket-mad Jamaica, was sounded out by Melbourne Stars captain Warren in August after cementing his status as an athletics legend by defending his 100m, 200m and 4x100m relay crowns at the London 2012 Olympics. I don't know if you guys heard about that. Bolt said at the time that he would definitely love to be involved in the Australian tournament, prompting Warren to launch a Twitter campaign to try to bring about the move. The story resurfaced last Friday when ex-Australia wicketkeeper Ian Healy tweeted that a deal between Bolt and the Stars to play in the competition, which runs from 7th December to 9th January, was hours away. But Healy's claim was dismissed by Sims, who said, quote, I met with the Melbourne Stars in October and told them Usain is not available to play cricket this year. Melbourne Stars media manager Jess Cook told BBC Sport that the team had held lengthy discussions with Bolt's representatives over the summer before accepting defeat. From our end, this has been done and dusted since mid-October, she told BBC Sport. We had lengthy discussions with Bolt's management from June to August, but his training schedule ahead of the World Championships unfortunately wouldn't allow him to be involved with the Stars this summer. We will remain close to Bolt and explore it again next season. Bolt, who describes himself as an all-rounder, has appeared in charity cricket matches and famously clean-bowled then-West Indies captain Chris Gale in 2009. His first love, however, is football. He was a special guest of Manchester United at the 2011 Champions League final in London and spoke recently of his desire to play professionally in the future. It's a pity that this is a story that we've been tracking for quite a while. It's been rumoured all year that Bolt might play in Big Bash League. I suppose it was kind of a ridiculous idea when you think about it. Realistically, he would have had to retire um, from athletics to do it. And there wasn't too much chance of that, given that he's still only 26. There's some suggestion there that he might look at cricket, if not football, when he retires. But that's four years away, so you can't get too excited about it. I mean, no one really thinks that Usain Bolt's going to be a world-class cricketer, but it would be a hell of a coup um, for the Big Bash League if they could get him involved in some capacity, even if it's just a sort of one-off cameo appearance. Uh, but it doesn't look like it's going to happen this season. Uh, and one other article for you comes from crickinfo.com. 
uh, leave Jesse alone. If you have ever enjoyed watching Jesse Ryder's pickup shot off the pads, and if you want to see more, you can do more than abuse the Killjoy officials under your breath. Ryder's frequent run-ins with authorities have made Beige Brigade, a group of irreverent New Zealand fans, come up with an innovative fundraiser to help Ryder concentrate on his cricket. All the money raised through Give a Little, Leave Jesse Alone will go towards paying fines imposed on Ryder. This, Beige Brigade believes, will help him focus on what he is best at. Crishing covered drives and flucking it off his child-bearing hips. Beige Brigade would like to clarify that this effort is not affiliated with Jesse in any way. We just thought it was the right thing to do. And wanting to watch Ryder's regal dibbly-dobblies and giving him the liberty to have a polite discussion with the umpire when an LBW is not given can't be the wrong thing to do. That's a cool story. Uh, I don't know whether it will go down that well in certain circles, uh, but it's certainly quite an amusing thing uh, that the Beige Brigade are trying to accomplish there. Might need a similar thing for Tony one of these days. Much like Ella Henderson's stint on The X Factor, this episode of The World Cricket Show has come to an end. If you thought I don't have my finger on the reality TV show pulse, you could not be more wrong. But yeah, that's all you're going to get this week. Tony will be back for next week's episode. You will be relieved to hear. He'll be back to talk about the second test between India and England in Mumbai and the second test between Australia and South Africa in Adelaide. All very exciting, but between now and next week's show, uh, there's all kinds of things that you can do if you want to get more involved in the World Cricket Show. And why wouldn't you? Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com slash cricket show. That's essentially me. You can also follow Tony at Tony Cover. T-O-N-Y-C-V-R-R. Sometimes the two of us just banter back and forth in hilarious fashion. You know, we're never off the clock, me and Tony. We're always always bantering, always bantering. Except um, except tonight, I suppose. He's off the clock tonight. Uh, find us on Facebook as well. All the kids seem to be joining Facebook. That's something that I've noticed over the last few years. Everyone's on Facebook. Facebook.com slash cricket show. There's what I think is a new thing on Facebook pages. If you go to the page and you hover your mouse uh, over the button that says that you like it, it says liked, um, there's an option that appears that says get notifications. So if you're not on Facebook all that much and you might miss on the newsfeed when we post something, whether it's an update on a new episode or new photos that we've posted or whatever, uh, you can set it so that you'll get a notification every time we post on Facebook. So that might be something uh, that some of you want to do. I don't know. Uh, you can send us an email as well, worldcricketshow at gmail.com. If you want to get some tickets for Tony's stand-up tour, uh, you can't, I'm afraid, because his tour is completely sold out and also fictional. Leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, we do enormously appreciate all the reviews that we get there. Um, in fact, this week, if you could, the week that Tony's away, why not do a favour for him, a favour for the World Cricket Show? Tell a friend about us. Uh, we're looking to kick off a big marketing push over the next few weeks. If you enjoy listening to this show, it really would do us a big favour if you told some people about it, tweet about it, write something on Facebook about it, or even just use your mouth uh, and tell some people that you know. Uh, and the other thing as well, if you go to www.cricketshow.net, that's our website, and on there uh, you're able to buy a World Cricket Show t-shirt, just £15, uh, which is a little bit less than $25 US dollars and around the same in Australian dollars, you can get your hands on a World Cricket Show t-shirt, and that includes shipping to anywhere in the world. You can't really say fairer than that. But anyway, that's about it for this week. Stay in school, team, and I'll be back with Tony in a week's time. Bye-bye for now.
luck to smell your fear deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.